Hello and welcome to another episode of Politically Entertaining, your cliff notes to American politics. I'm Frank and here with Byron again. Just want to welcome you back to the show. If, you, if you're a, a repeat listener, if it's your first time, we want to welcome you to the show. Byron, before we get started, go ahead and let all the listeners know what we're all about and start off with any other thing you want to get to. Hey, um, last week we had the most listeners we've ever had, so we really appreciate that, man. Um, basically, real quick, like I've told you the last three shows, we just really want to break down news as best we can for those who don't follow it every day. And like I always say, if you do follow it every day, you know, hopefully we can bring you something that doesn't get covered as much in the mainstream media. So we hope you like what you hear. Now, Frank, you know there's a lot going on about the whole presidential race. And especially on the Republican side, they're saying, you know, anybody but Trump who looks like he may take it. I have a candidate that nobody has thought about. I have the person who should be running for president, man. I got to know who it is. <laughs> Steve Kerr. <laughs> okay, let me get this straight. So for our listeners out there, you're saying Steve Kerr, who's the coach of the Golden State Warriors, former player, Chicago Bulls, you're saying he should be the presidential candidate? <laughs> well, hear me out. Hear me out. Now, being the president, we, we're basing it all on making great decisions, right? Sure. So he goes to the Bulls. He wins multiple championships. He goes to the Spurs, more multiple championships. The Phoenix Suns, he was the general manager during the whole Steve Nash, Amari Stoudemire run. They had a lot of success. And then his biggest decision between the New York Knicks reuniting with Phil Jackson or the Golden State Warriors, and everybody was saying, you know, he should really pick the Knicks because the only tough team in the East is Cleveland. Golden State you got to deal with the Spurs and the Clippers and and the Thunder. (laughs) He goes to the Warriors and wins a championship the very first year, and he gets a front seat to see Steph Curry do what he does. So that is right there, man. Steve Kerr, 2016. (laughs) All right. Let's go ahead and get this thing kicked off. Politically entertaining. Your clips notes to American politics. And now your host, Frank. There's a lot to get to. Before we get started, I know that you know we always you know talk about political stuff, but I got I got a really interesting question for you. And I know that you're up for the challenge. I I know you're a huge Miami Heat fan. I know that you were uh, disappointed by a certain player going back to a certain team. I won't even say the names because I I know how you feel about those things. I appreciate that. Um, But I will say this: if if you had to guess and give it the either, neither, or both on this, if I had to guess, if you had to guess between Tiger Woods and this unnamed player that wears 23 that plays on Cleveland, either, neither, or both, winning another major for Tiger Woods and for this number 23 on on Cleveland winning another championship, would you bet either, neither, or both on one of those things? Man, I, I think, man, at this point. I'm leaning towards either neither or Tiger. I mean, because Tiger's real banged up, but, I mean, he's still relatively young, but it seems unlikely. So if you pin me down and made me pick a choice, I would say neither. Okay. I respect that. That's interesting. Like I said, uh, we're not going to get derailed on that, but I know that that's something that uh, you, you often talk about, you know, in in other channels, but I just wanted to kind of give you give you a hard time with that before we get started. So, um, obviously, the, the top the top news is Super Tuesday. It, you know, it was a huge deal. You know, obviously, Kelly Clinton took control of the race. Uh, Bernie Sanders is kind of struggling, trying to trying to catch up. Uh, the Republican side is a complete mess from a standpoint of Trump is still winning, but it doesn't appear that they won him uh, in any name, shape, or form. Mitt Romney is on the attack against him. The whole convention is looking like it might explode. Just give our listeners an idea of why or what they should be even looking at or paying attention to after Super Tuesday. 
Well, great question. Um, with Super Tuesday, man, you know, I know the media or whatever, if you're watching the coverage, they mostly cover who wins what state. And, like, on the Republican side, if you look at all the states that Trump won, you think it to yourself, wow, Trump is way ahead. But, folks, it's really all about the delegates, especially until March 15th. And the reason I picked that day is because all of these primaries and caucuses before March 15th are proportionate states. And what that means is even though Trump may win a New Hampshire or South Carolina or Nevada, he doesn't get all of the delegates. They're proportioned. So Cruz has been finishing second in a lot of those states. And on Super Tuesday, he won one of the biggest prizes there is in Texas. And if you look at it, he's less than 100 delegates behind Trump. And that was as of Super Tuesday. We're here on Saturday night as we record this. He's won Kansas. It looks like he may win Maine. So he's not that far behind in, on delegates. And in order to get the nomination for the Republican Party, you need 1,236 delegates total. And so he's right there as opposed to the Democratic side. You know, Hillary is way ahead of Bernie. She's like over 600-plus delegates as of Super Tuesday. I haven't added up what she's won today. But And it's also important to remember, Democrats have super delegates. Those are elected officials in each state that personally hold delegates that will pledge to support a particular candidate and give them their delegates at the convention. And the Democrats, they have a, a much higher threshold because of those super delegates. They need a total of like 2,383, if I'm not mistaken. That's off the top of my head, but it's... It's close to that number as far as getting the nomination. So don't pay too much attention on who wins what states. Just add up the delegates for each candidate, and that gives you the best idea of where each stands. And there's a lot at stake tonight, again, like I said, as we were record this show. Interesting. So let me, before you get off of there, I know you mentioned we, you talked about Cruz, you talked about Trump. Where is Kasich and Rubio heading? Are they, you know, there? There's been talk that, you know, after Super Tuesday, potentially to prevent Trump from winning, the other candidates, mainly Rubio and, and uh, Kasich, should potentially drop out and continue to quit splitting the votes uh, between uh, Trump. So, what are your thoughts on on their way forward? Is there any chance that that is is, is it either Trump or Cruz or, or Rubio and Kasich also still in, in play to get? Uh, the nomination for the GOP. Well, Kasich has said that he's waiting to Ohio. He's the governor of Ohio. He feels like he can win, and he feels like no matter what happens before then, if he can win Ohio, then that springboards him into more wins. If you were to ask me my opinion, I disagree. That seems like a very long shot. And if I were a top person in the Republican Party, I would be asking him to drop out. But it's his decision. That's what he chooses to do. Rubio. He really needed um, he really needed Trump to beat Cruz in Texas. He needed that more than anything. Cruz won Texas, so now that puts all the pressure on Rubio to win Florida. And right now he's polling behind Trump in Florida. And he has said that he's going to go to all 50 states. He's not dropping out of the race. And his thing is he's just going to try to get as many delegates as he can. He believes that Trump won't be able to get the magic number to officially get the nomination. As I told you, 1,236, however many delegates Republicans need. So he's going to go all the way to the convention, and they they do what they call a broker convention, which means they challenge each other and see who gets the nomination. But me personally, again, if, I was, if, if it was my opinion, if he doesn't win Florida, I don't see how he stays in. I don't see how you make the argument that, yeah, I lost the state that I'm senator of, but – I want to continue on. It's going to be tough, but, again, it's, it's his decision. Sure. So, Frank, I wanted to um, ask you a question. We're going to um, step away from, from politics. Well, not really from politics because it's a, it's a Senate bill. Before we get to it, I just want to let the folks know we do have a great interview for you coming up in a few minutes with Terry Matthews. She's an entrepreneur. She's won countless awards. She's doing a lot of great things. Um, and I think you'll really like it. You'll really enjoy it. Um, so stay tuned for that. Um, Frank, have you heard of heroin? 
I think I have. I, you know, it's, it's definitely something you don't want to get addicted to. It's, it's it's been around for a while, has it not? I believe so. <laughs> okay, I, I I ask you that because you know if you watch the Senate at all the last week and a half, you would you would swear that it's a new drug that just hit the market, that just hit the streets because they've now come up with a bill and they're calling heroin an, an epidemic now, and you know fans of The Wire, and if you go back further than that, HBO had a miniseries called The Corner. Um, you know, it dealt with heroin and, you know, in a lot of poor black neighborhoods, it was already an ap- epidemic, but you have a lot of, and I don't want to make it racial, but this is, you know, factually what happened. More, more white people are using the drug now. And, you know, you can't really accuse anybody of saying, well, <clears throat> you're only paying attention to it now because white people are on it. It could just be the sheer numbers that, it's more people on it now, and that's what makes it an epidemic. But it, it just was kind of, in a sad way, funny that they're finally addressing this drug that I've heard of since, I don't know, the early 90s. I wanted to, you know, get your thoughts on that. It's a bill that the, the Senate is currently working on. I mean, you know, it just, it, you always want to take, a, a, how would you say, an objective stance when it comes to these things, but it's tough to make take a completely objective stands on something that seems to be very subjective. When you go back and you look how the sending things went for crack cocaine uh, versus, you know, regular regular cocaine, uh, there's a big big disparity. And the big disparity was not, you know, obviously there's a difference in the way the, the products are prepared, but there was also a difference in the people who were consuming and selling uh, one product or the other. And I think without saying it, I think we can kind of figure out what that means. Those with more melanin in their uh, skin tend to be prosecuted more harshly for some of these drug offenses. Now, it's an epidemic because it's a majority thing. Now, taking race out of the equation, it, yes, it is simply becoming something where if because the Caucasian population is is a larger population, it is more of an issue because there's more people uh, dealing with it. And so it's not as easy to put mass amounts of Caucasians in jail uh, the same way was as the same way as it was, say, 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, to put um, large numbers of African Americans away for, you know, same nonviolent drug offenses. So there's a numbers problem on 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 this as well. So it's like, well, if they try to, you know, do the same thing they did with crack cocaine, the jails, you want to talk about them being full? They can't. They couldn't build enough of them fast enough, based on the way people are, you know, you know, basically getting addicted to heroin. So what is what is showing a light is that. They're framing now drug addiction a little bit differently, and instead of it being something where, you know, a drug addict and a drug dealer was something that was scary and nefarious, now it's like, oh, it's like a mental illness. These people need help. It's a weakness. It's a problem. And and, and it just would have been fair if it had always been treated that way, but it hasn't been. And I don't think they're dealing with this incorrectly. You see, I don't believe necessarily in an eye for an eye. I believe that if you have a chance to get something right, get it right. But I do feel like it was not handled correctly in the past when other people, a majority of um, other people being African-Americans and maybe Hispanic people were, you know, dealt with unfairly with some of these, you know, crack cocaine. Now it's a, you know, more of a treatable thing with heroin. They want to get people help. And that's, and that's what you kind of want from everybody. Drug addiction is something that should be helped for all people. I know there, and there are people that you should prosecute. The dealers are definitely the people you want to go after, the big-time dealers, and th- that's important to always to get those people off the street. But the actual people who are taking the drug and, you know, that are falling prey to it, you know, there, there has to be sympathy and, and rehabilitation for them. And I think that's where people would get upset when they see the way that people are being treated in regard to the way heroin is now getting uh, you know, approval to get, you know, people come in and get treatment and, yeah. you know, they're get, they're getting them clean. And, and that's what, you know, we'd hope for all people who have drug addiction problems. Andre 3001 said, and then it spread to white folks and got everyone's undivided attention because your daughter is on it and you can't hide it. And that's the verse I thought of when I saw them talking about this bill. And, like, you, you brought up a great point, you know, they're focusing on getting these people treatment, and if you watch the corner of the wire, it wasn't as much about treatment as it was about locking people up. But anyway, I, again, I don't want to make it a race thing. Um, we have talked about the Supreme Court several times on this show, and their first big case is up. And as you know, they only have eight justices now, 
So the the thought is it could come back uh, four four. But the case before them is uh, I forget the exact name of the plaintiffs, but it's like the state of Texas. It's an abortion case, and basically what Texas has done is they've created these standards for abortion clinics that uh, pro pro choice people are saying make it too difficult for an abortion clinic to stay open and function. And you know Texas is a huge and it's really forced a lot of abortion clinics in that state to close down, forcing women that, you know, will want an abortion. Um, there are some stories where they have to travel 700 miles round trip to get an abortion. They've made it difficult, and, and, and pro-choice people are saying that Texas has, in a way, found a loophole around the whole Roe v. Wade thing. So it, I just wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, will this – Will this, like, put more pressure on, do you think, Republicans to at least hear out a justice for Obama or would they ignore it and hope it comes back 4-4 or even 5-3 in their favor? You know, Republicans tend to be more pro-life than pro-choice. And so it could come out in their way. But a good thing for the White House is it keeps the Supreme Court in the spotlight, in the news cycle, which is what they want because you want to put that pressure on Republicans, so do you think they'll budge, or will they keep hold their ground? I I don't think that they're going to budge unless something happens, because I think that their position has been fight everything you know the Democrats propose and not come up with a solution. I think that's the main um, that's the thing that's an enigma with I guess the Republican Party is. You know, I don't have a problem with people challenging ideas. It doesn't doesn't seem like they have a lot of great alternatives. Now, obviously, there's nine Supreme Court justices in there, and it has been that way for quite some time. So I think for the sanctity of the court, I do believe that there should be nine justices because that's just the way it is, and that's the way it should be. And, and, and there shouldn't be gerrymandering with regard to uh, let's make sure we get a certain president in to, you know, decide what kind of justice we get. And we do, if we have a current president who's who's in good standing. He's not like he's in peace or, or embattled. He's he's got a, a pretty good approval rating. Uh he's doing well as far, you know, as far as what he's done. And so go ahead and let him approve, uh, you know, uh, not approve, but go let let him put put up a justice for to be appointed and, and vet the vet the justice and you know, at least make it um I I, th- I think the thing that is people is getting frustrated with is there's no. I don't think it's even an issue if they rejected a person that the president, if President Obama put somebody out there, and they're like, oh, no, you know, we're not going to confirm them. I think it's just the the, the defiance that we're not even going to hear about it. We don't want to hear about it, and it's like the you know that's not how this is supposed to work. And I think that they're trying to subvert the process. And I think that's what's frustrating people. And, and it is good. I think what you mentioned is the great point is this case is keeping the fact that there are only eight justices in. Uh, the Supreme Court and making it something that people would know. Because let's say there was no cases coming up in, in the near term, then it's like the Supreme Court is kind of in the background, or kind of a slow thing. I know here, here, here's my thing. So the Supreme Court, for those Lord of the Rings fans out there, and, and some of you might not get this reference, but they're kind of like the Ents, and they were like the trees in Lord of the Rings, and they were very slow to do things, they were, but they were very powerful when they made a move to do something. They tilted the balance um, in Lord of the Rings when they decided to become active, and they don't, and they moved at kind of a glacial pace. And so that's kind of what you want from your Supreme Court justices. They don't, you know, Roe v. Wade has stood up for a long time, and, and those are good things. And, and Brown versus Board of Education stand up for a long time. Separate is not equal. Those are that, that's they they move at. They don't just change their mind every time something happens. Something changes. That's why I think it's so interesting that the GOP touts they're going to repeal Obamacare and same-sex marriage and all these things. And it's like you can't just repeal what the Supreme Court has already said is, is 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 law. You have to come up with a case and a precedent to overturn it. You can't just say, "Hey, can you overturn this decision?" They're not going to just do that. So I find it very interesting that they, I feel like they're over, overstepping their 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 they're overplaying their hand, and the average American doesn't understand how the three powers, uh, three branches of government work: the legislative, judicial, executive. Uh, you know this. The legislative branch can't just tell the judicial branch repeal this law because we want to. It doesn't work like that. So it's it's very interesting. But as you said, it keeps it in the spotlight, and it'll be interesting to see what the decision is. You uh, you mentioned the, the probably the biggest frustration for Democrats and liberals is 
like they won't even meet with a nominee. They won't even have a hearing. You know, Democrats are saying that you don't even have to vote yes to confirm the uh, nominee, but at least have a hearing. And and I get why that's frustrating, but I have to be honest. If 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 you're a Republican, there really is no incentive. I mean, like you say, well, they could be overplaying their hand. That's possible. But there is no incentive really for them to even, I would say, confirm another nominee. Like, I think they should at least hear one. But there's no really there's no real incentive because the only thing they would risk is Obama appointing a justice that you know they don't agree with, and if they wind up in the White House in November, then oh well, they'll just get a a liberal nominee. But I think you make a great point by saying they're overplaying their hand because at least the the stance that they took, they can they really can force Obama to pick somebody that's more centered than say a newly elected President Clinton or President Sanders who may appoint somebody even further to the left. So it's just it remains an interesting thing to see how it plays out. As of now though it doesn't seem like they are going to budge. And now I I wanna let the listeners know, you know, stick around, we're gonna give you our thoughts on I I guess you can call it the controversial Oscars. Whatever, we'll give you our thoughts on that later. But for now, I want you to stay tuned and listen to this uh, Terry Matthews interview. She is a leading voice against autism. She is an entrepreneur, and we think you'll love this interview. So take a listen. Listen up. It's time for a politically entertaining exclusive interview. Today's guest has done a lot of interesting things. She's an entrepreneur, and she's received numerous awards for her accomplishments. She's one of the leading voices against autism. Ms. Terry Matthews, how are you this morning, ma'am? I'm good. How are you? (laughs) I'm doing okay. We want to thank you for joining Politically Entertaining today. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I was listening to one of your podcasts, and I thought, oh, this is pretty cool. <laughs> All right. Well, let's hope, let's hope we can keep you thinking that way. Um, <laughs> I, met, I mentioned you to some of my friends. I um, let a few of them know that I was getting ready to interview you, and I had them check out your website. And the response was the same each time. They were like, you know, she's the type of woman that I'm striving to be like, and she just seems so amazing and everything. So for some of our listeners, can you tell us some of the things that you have done throughout your career, and what are some of the things that you're currently doing? Well, um, I I say sometimes I'm a jack of all trades and a master of all. <laughs> I know most. Okay. Of the, I know that's not how it's said. I kind of made my own version. Um, but you know, my heart and my love um, is definitely in helping um, helping people achieve, achieve their dreams, their goals, and I think dreams. Uh, sounds so cliche, um, but, you know, past, my past um, work has been definitely in business, and I've worn a variety of hats. I've worked in corporate America. I'm a bit of a serial entrepreneur, and right now um, my fight and part of my work is definitely with autism because I have a nine-year-old son who's autistic. So um, I've worn, you know, a lot of hats in a variety of industries. So, um, again, that's why I like to say I'm a jack-of-all-trades, and I master them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Very well. And uh, what, are, what are some of the things that you're currently doing? So right now um, I'm really focused uh, heavily on, well, a couple of personal initiatives for me. Um, I'm working with uh, Sabrina Bitmall, who's my partner, and also Lisa Ray, um, who's also a partner, and another friend of mine named Kimberly Moore, and there's, a brand that we're working on known as ICAN. Um, we spell it I-K-A-N. And it's basically a movement. Um, it's encouraging women that they can do anything that it is they set their mind to. And so we've come up with uh, quite a few different products, everything from clothing to actual skin care. Um, and, you know, we're really pushing to encourage women that, that anything is possible um, and they don't have to limit themselves regardless of their socioeconomic status their background, their race, um, challenges that they have had to go through that, you know, they can do it. So that that's a love right now of mine. Um, I'll stay forever working on autism, 
so I don't think there's a day that I don't deal with autism from one um, one end or the other, whether it's um, bridging families to make sure that they get services, so bridging families that have gaps financially uh, to make sure that they're getting the resources that they need in the community. Um, I also opened a healthcare company, um, so that has kept me uh, tied down <laughs> quite a bit because healthcare, healthcare, excuse me, has so many different dynamics, and um, we are trying to make sure that um, we increase, even if it's not required, but increase the level of service that people get in the healthcare um, industry. So those are some top, top um, initiatives that I have at the moment. There's others, but I'm not allowed to speak about them just yet. <laughs> well, sounds like you have a, a lot going on. Uh, you mentioned autism. Autism, uh, it affects 200,000 new kids each year. Um, it, it affects one in every 68 kids between the ages of two and three. Now, your son, Jaden, he was diagnosed when he was two and a half, correct? Yes, he was diagnosed when he was two and a half. And Byron, if I can just correct you, right now, actually, um, they're saying really it's 145. Um, there's oh, been wow. some opposite okay. reports to increase that. Um, I spoke with NBC in reference to it. Um, they believe that they had misdiagnosed a few children and some things were under the radar, and they're realizing that it's such a huge problem, and they're not sure how to get their hands around it. And more and more kids um, are able to be diagnosed even um, as early as 12 months. Um, I wouldn't recommend earlier than that, but definitely between the ages of 12 and 18 months. And so they're trying to um, really identify what's the most appropriate type of diagnosis and who should be allowed to diagnose children just so they're, they're not labeled. Um, but also so they're not missed. So, yes, um, it, it's the fastest developmental disability uh, in the United States. It's more diagnosed than any other childhood um, illnesses or disease. Um, and to be honest, um, our arms are tied up because we're not sure what we're going to do. We have a high population of people that will be um, aging out of the system. And what that means is we won't have jobs or places for them to live, which will impact um, our world truly you um thank you for thank you for the correction i i read up on autism and it seems like it's something that they're still uh learning and figuring out about and as you said it's like the fastest growing disease and one of the reasons is because they don't know how many kids that they miss you know many years ago that may have had it and it's something that they're still kind of learning about um, you mentioned some of the goals of Jaden's voice. Um, mm -hmm. What 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 are, what can you say are some of the difficulties of, of raising a child with autism? Well, I would have to say um, there's such a high span um, or range, if you will, of difficulties. But I can tell you, you know, uh, fortunately and unfortunately, I've been able to wear many hats as a mom um, with an autistic child. So, you know, I have. I always say all the time, you know, I've been everything but homeless with Jaden. So, I've, you know, the challenges that come with um, having a child that's on the spectrum is if you're a working mom, the challenges come from there are behaviors sometimes that happen. You get called off of your job, and not too many jobs are going to deal with you constantly being called off. You know, um, if you are in a marriage, it impacts marriages sometimes. It impacts the other children in the home because, you know, your whole life is centered around quote-unquote, fixing or trying to improve this child that has um, these additional challenges. These families sometimes become isolated. There are stigmas that are associated with autism because as much as we feel like we know, we are so, 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 so far behind in our understanding. And so, you know, people even look at Jaden and go, well, he doesn't look autistic. And I'm like, well, what does autism look like? <laughs> you know, so it's like, you know, our understanding of what autism is and um, is just not there. So our communities are challenged. People stop going to church. They stop going out to eat as a family or individually with that particular child if you're a single parent. Um, there's just so many things. There's challenges in schools. The schools don't know how to appropriate time support our kids. And there's a huge financial burden that's associated with autism. Um, although when your child is diagnosed, you do receive or you're eligible to receive, no matter how much money you make, just as an example in the state of PA, um, you're eligible for Medicaid. You can make $10 million a year. You can have another insurance, but Medicaid becomes your primary. 
And the challenge even with that is if you have a non-speaking child, you know, 30 minutes of speech won't work. So most parents end up, if they can afford it, um, going out to get um, additional therapies and different services. So there's just so many challenges that come with it. A lot of these parents don't get breaks because they can't leave their child anywhere because sometimes people don't know how to deal with the nonverbal child. And some of these kids, you know, not that they're not all nonverbal. Some speak very well, but they have what people would consider um, challenging behaviors or a sense of awkwardness or uniqueness to them. Um, and it's, it's challenging for people to leave their children with others because they just are not sure if they can take care of them. So it's, it's a span. It really is. But I really want to help be a voice to not only just focus on the challenges that come with autism, but the hope that there is and to let parents know that they're not alone and they can speak about it and, um, you know, and not to, to be ashamed. An important thing that uh, you guys are doing at Jayden's Voice, too, besides uh, financially helping families is you, you, uh, you mentioned how so much is not known about autism and you guys are trying to educate people and, and spread awareness. And that's just important. That's just as important as the, uh, the financial aspect of it, isn't it? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, we do way more than the financial piece. I mean, um, the financial piece for us is not necessarily placing money in hands, but placing resources in hands that people can't afford to get to. So that's, that's one aspect. Um, you know, we put iPads in parents' hands so that they can become a speech therapist for their, for their own child. So we teach parents how to be teachers to their children uh, because they can't get to those resources. Some of these kids, parents or kids have to get on buses and, you know, anything, if you know anything about autistic children, sometimes being overstimulated creates them to go into something called a meltdown. And a meltdown is different than a tantrum. You know, you're not negotiating with, you know, him or her saying, hey, mommy will give you a sticker or, you know, you want, you want some ice cream to get them to calm down. Not even a threat, you know, for taking toys or if you're a parent who, who spanks or whatever it is that you do. None of that stuff works with an autistic child. Um, they don't have that kind of level of reasoning or fear. And so, you know, outside of just making sure that we're educating the community, and community is we educate doctors, believe it or not. You know, we educate pediatricians. The assumption is that, oh, it's a pediatrician they should know. But most pediatricians don't, don't really diagnose all the time for autism. It's, it's usually a developmental pediatrician that should be diagnosing for autism. And so... There's all these little complexities that just come around the space of autism, and we're just so busy trying to educate the churches, the schools, the doctors, um, the everyday people, the bus drivers, you know, and then also educating families and uh, even stores. I mean, we go to restaurants and, and, you know, just as an example, the Eagle Stadium, all of their entire 3,000 staff is trained on how to deal with autism should they have a situation uh, where someone brings an autistic individual to a game. So it's a, it's a big, big, big um, thing, if you will, um, and a lot of challenges associated with it. Go, hey, we're up for the fight. We are talking to Terry Matthews. You can uh, read up on her at JustTerry.com. That's JustTerry, T-E-R-R-I.com, and Jaden's Voice, J-A-D-E-N-S, Voice.org, to learn more about autism. My uh, my co-host, Frank, he couldn't be here for this interview, but he did read up on you. And one of the questions that he was very curious about, he's a, he's a new parent, and you know new parents, new, new first-time parents, they have a lot of worries about things, about, you know, what their kid may or may not have. And what he, wanted, what he wanted to ask you was, um, you know, autism obviously is a difficult thing to deal with, but... In any way, have you looked at it as a blessing in the sense that it has driven you to start Jaden's Voice and to help so many other families? Well, I would say um, it is an absolute blessing. I mean, it has taught me so many things, unconditional love. Um, you have to have patience with an autistic child. There is no option. Um, you have to understand compromise. You have to recognize being flexible, having a level of flexibility, um, and, I, you know, like I said to you earlier, I've, I've worn many hats with Jaden. I've been a married mom. I've been a divorced mom. I've been a dating mom. I've been a business mom. You know, I've been a corporate mom. I've been an unemployed mom. 
you know, so I have been in all of those um, categories, if you will, and with an autistic child. So by being in all of those areas in my life um, and having to deal with these challenges that have been placed before me, it helped me recognize so many things that I didn't see before. And um, in reference to autism, I think that um, how it changed my life was it gave me all of the skill set that I thought I had had and I had used in business. I definitely have used it to build this nonprofit organization, and I have definitely used it to help the parents um, that are dealing with autism because a lot of them sometimes feel like their whole life has to be quit. You know, they have to quit life in a sense to take care of this child, and some, many of them honestly do. But then they fall into depression and they don't understand their value anymore. And, you know, I deal with fathers who, you know, men are, let's face it, men are fix-it people, right? And if right. they're in their heart, they want to protect their family and, and, and fix things that they feel are broken. And when they can't fix it, it creates a problem for them and it can create a problem in their marriage. I mean, you know, I've had officers call me, ball players call me that are seriously in tears and, and struggling with um, the situation of how to deal with autism. And so, you know, I thank God that he felt um, like he could trust me to get his word out and get his word out even through autism. I've prayed with many parents. I've stayed up late hours of the night. I've driven on the phone while mom is uh, considering killing herself and killing her child because she couldn't handle this child um, who was just so out of control. And I don't know, you know, when people think of a kid being out of control, we just think about it from our standpoint of, well, it can't be that bad. You punish a child, you sit them down, you put them in the corner, you take away things. But with an autistic child, those types of things don't work. Their negative behaviors escalate and escalate. And they can cry for 45 minutes. I've seen them cry for two hours straight, nonstop, at a high-pitched level, not just a, I mean, screaming at the top of their lungs. So it takes a lot out of you. Um, and you life doesn't stop because you have an autistic child. So whatever you were going through before, you're still going through. Or whatever you got to go through, you're still going to go through. And now you just add this additional challenge in your life. So I can tell you that um, personally for me, it has been a blessing. Um, I've been able to connect with a lot of families and a lot of people. Um, we've been able together to, to create some major changes across the United States. Um, we've had city, state, and federal officials look at us and adapt some of the things that we've requested to be changed. And it takes time. You know, nothing is done overnight. You know, Rome wasn't built overnight, as they say. And so I'm grateful to be able to have this opportunity. And more important for these new parents, we're able to continue to educate, not to scare them. Every child born is not autistic. Um, but we have the, the great opportunity to get before these parents and make sure that they're getting services and connected to resources early on. So should their child be autistic, the likelihood of them being set up for success is better. You are you are like your living inspiration. I hope I hope you know that. Um, we we had a guest on last week, and I mentioned an article I saw in Forbes, and I wanted to just briefly go over with you by you being an, an entrepreneur. And one of the statistics that really stood out to me is um, African American women. I didn't notice at the time were the fastest growing entrepreneurs in this country, uh, but but despite that. They're only receiving about point. Well, they're point two percent of them are only receiving uh, money for their startup companies, and when they do receive money, on average, it's like thirty six thousand versus forty one million on all other companies. So thirty six thousand for companies headed by black women versus forty one million in all other companies. As an entrepreneur, is, are those numbers surprising to you? Or is that something that you kind of already had an idea. Well, I will tell you, I didn't know those those numbers specifically, um, but they are not surprising. Um, a lot of times where I'm spending time talking to women because I was just on a panel discussion and, you know, I had a lot of young women that are super talented. Um, they just get it. You know, they are putting together things uh, for, you know, products and services and um, different types of businesses that are very unique. Um, or enhanced possibly and, and have great offerings and have the opportunity to make these women, I mean, some serious residual income where they can sit back. Where I have found that most people are challenged or where they're challenged at is 
the income portion, the startup, the working capital. And right. all of these grants, you know, oh, sign up for this grant, you know, be participant in this city grant or this, and we're going to help you open your business. And do I believe some of those things are true? Yeah. But I don't think we really know how to reach them. And I don't really think, to be honest, they're made for us to reach them. And so what ends up happening is you have these women who have these awesome ideas um, that have such opportunity to create such an amazing residual amount of income and put them on the front of Forbes on a regular basis, and they never, they never get to reach um, from, um, I would say, a conceptual idea to a reality. And the challenge has been because of money. Uh, we are not taught early on. You know, I taught a class with women who have been in business for 15 years. I talked about a Dun and Bradstreet, and 95% of the women raised their hand and said they had no clue what it was. I mean, we don't we don't understand how to take our businesses to the next level. And I believe we're all, you know, I think because of survival, us as African Americans, we understand how to take what we can and develop what we can. That's why we have hair shops in our community. I have a young lady I know right now that makes $8 million on three hair salons. You would never know it, but she does. But she doesn't know anything about business credit. She would love to franchise her idea. She doesn't have that level of understanding. And if there's additional funding that she would have needed to kind of secure uh, buildings or locations and other types of places, she couldn't get it. And even though she was making $8 million, we don't understand how to make our money work for us. So we make money, and at $8 million, you can still be living from one paycheck per se, even though you're writing your own paycheck. You can right. be living from one check to the next. So the reason why is because when you see other people who start businesses, nine times out of ten, there's a mentor that's before them. That's one. The other thing that's before them outside of there being a mentor, um, there are resources for them. There are opportunities for them. They come from business backgrounds. Their parents had businesses. We don't, unfortunately, a lot less of us come from those communities. And so what ends up happening is is that we try, we, we get together, we do what we can. We don't know how to maximize if we do take this concept and make it into a reality. And we don't invest back in ourselves. So we don't think to step into classes or to understand things like a Dun and Bradstreet or how do you really franchise? Should I rent this building that my hair salon is in or should I buy it and be rent free? Like we don't all the time think of those things and we don't know how to make our money make money for us. We're used to surviving and not living and that's the difference. And we're happy that we're business owners. But the, the challenge is, is that we don't maximize our potential and part of it sometimes is us just because we do what we can, and a lot of times, too, is we don't have access to the resources. It takes money. I just recently started a business. I'll tell you, it cost me $450,000 up front, and glory be to God, I didn't have to take a loan for it, but the thing about it is is that I thought to myself, here's this great business concept, right, I have, and I'm going to get started. I have all the numbers. Everything makes sense, and I assure you that if I stepped in a bank and would have asked, for money, and I know because I, I've gone to a bank that I've known and had a great business relationship with for years, and I said to them, I said, hey, I just want to keep you guys on the back burner. I don't need a, a loan right now, but should I need working capital, I'm coming to you. Oh, okay, they told me yes, 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 but they knew that I wasn't asking for anything. So I invested the money. I opened the business. Glory be to God, the business is doing great. In five months, I've made $1.8 million. I haven't the business now. Okay. So it's going, right? This is in five months, right? Actually, it's four, to be honest, four months and two days. So what ends up happening is I call the bank. I said, uh-oh, we're growing at the speed of light. I mean, you know, we are on target. I think now, just in case, I need to create, I need to have a loan for working capital. And I'm telling you a personal experience. You know what they told me? Before, they were shaking their head like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know what they turned around and said? Even though I have everything to prove it, and by the way, my money gets direct deposited to them every single week. So they know exactly how much money I have coming in, and they know exactly how much money I've been coming in. So what ends up happening is they say to me, well, Ms. Matthews, this business is less than two years old. Oh, wow. Now, listen, 
This is a relationship. I've known these people for over 10 years. I've brought millions of dollars through there. And this isn't about bragging. But the same person of a different complexion, right, mm-hmm. come in and I've watched it. I've been in their bank because I have that kind of relationship with even the vice president of the entire bank. And I've watched them do approval after approval after approval. And I said to them, they said, well, we're not going to be able to really approve it. We're probably not going to look at you for another year. I said, time out. One, we have a relationship. Number two, there's proof of how much money that I brought into this company. And you're telling me that I'm not even in a high-risk business that has an opportunity to fail. In four months, there's been $1.8 million brought to this bank. And I have no loans. Everything in reference to this business, I own. The furniture, the, the every anything that you would need to start a business, I bought. There's nothing borrowed, not even the people, okay? So I said, let me explain something to you. Why wouldn't you give me an approval? So when they told me no, that they wouldn't do it, I said, that's okay. I'll take all my business down the street. And they tried me. The next day, they called me. Oh, we're proving you. We're sending you all your stuff. We're sending over your stuff. We'll email it. So how all of a sudden, when you completely denied me and I threatened to take my business from you and you knew my potential and you've already known me and you know what money I brought to your bank before, all of a sudden you're able to automatically approve it because I threatened to leave and you knew you were going to leave, lose a solid um, consumer or customer? So that goes to show me that if you've done it like that and been able to do it, they've been able to do it all along. So it's frustrating for me when as a black woman or any woman decides to come to a bank with a profitable idea and they know that it works, that they have this little checklist that they go by and they forget like, you know, hey, Terry Matthews has been doing business for 15 years. She's already brought 20-something million dollars through this bank. They didn't even think about that. You know what they said? Oh, no, you know, no, we can, you, it's less than two years. But anybody else, and not to be, you know, disrespectful to those folks listening, but had I been a white male, they wouldn't have even second guessed it. I've watched it myself. I've been in the bank. I've been there. So I've, I'm like, this is crazy that this happens to us. And it's a way to me that we get held back, and it's unfortunate. You you mentioned that you hope you don't sound like you're you're bragging. I didn't hear bragging at all. All I heard was uh, <laughs> frustration. What I heard was it frustration. Is. And, and I hope the listeners can pick up on that, you know, when you hear – Sometimes you hear a politician and other people say, well, look, you know, America is, is equal opportunity for everybody. You know, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. You know, you can do everything you know, that you possibly can, but there are still, sometimes there are hurdles put up to try and slow you down or even stop you. So I'm well, glad that Well, let me tell you, it is equal opportunity. It's equal opportunity if you have the right relationships and the right money. That's, all, <laughs> that's, all, that's who it's for. You know what I mean? The challenge is, is that they have all these incubators. Oh, you're going to be in business. Start this business. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. Listen, uh, they, they, first of all, it's common known statistics, period. Every person in America, Warren Buffett included, Christopher Flowers, these are people I know, okay? Every person in America that's wealthy, that understands business, will tell you you have to fail a trillion times. And banks understand that, Right. So you would think that if they're going to put programs together, they would put programs together to make sure that you don't fail. If they are going to loan you the money, which they should, right, because that's the only way. Somebody has to take a chance on somebody. So if with all their actuaries and their people who determine risk and all of that other stuff, wouldn't it make sense that if you're going to uh, um, approve a person for a $100,000 loan, a $200,000 loan, that you know what happens is that you assign somebody next to them that's responsible for helping them manage, because maybe this is not an area, manage their money, not their business. As long as they know how to do the business, maybe they need help in these types of areas. These are the types of services or things that we need to have more of. And to be honest, my first business I opened, you know, as I said, as a serial entrepreneur, I've had restaurants, magazine companies, water companies, you name it. So my first restaurant I ordered, I mean, I owned and I started from scratch. Um, I didn't buy the franchise. I started it and sold it as a franchise. They denied me. I went in the bank and said, hey, you know, I, I wanted a loan. And they asked me how much I wanted, and I said, I need, you know, 200000 And they looked at me like I was crazy. How are you going to pay back? It didn't matter. I had a credit score at that time of 810, and they still declined me. 
And I'm like, okay. They're like, um, you've never worked in fast food before. You're not going to – and you know what? I said, you're right. I never have. But I went and hired Jamba Juice, if you've ever heard of Jamba Juice. I went and hired the people who Jamba Juice use to build their place. Sometimes no. <laughs> right. So you know, the thing was I was smart enough to put the right people around me. I understood what my gaps were. And I went and found those people as consultants help, to help me build it, to do all these things. So I pulled this together, and to be honest, I was declined. So if I could say anything to anybody who's out there doing a business, this is two times the bank in my, in my, uh, my entrepreneurial career, if you will, have showed me that they can make changes. I went in, they declined me. You know, I sat outside of that bank two, three days in a row till I figured out what time the president of the bank came. He got out of his car. I got out of my car. He was walking, and I said, sir, I'm sorry. I don't mean to bother you. I said, um, I had come to your bank to get a loan, and I was declined. And I, I, this concept or idea that I have, I feel like it will do great. If you would just give me a few moments of your time. And he said, I don't have time today. Uh, I, he, he was kind of like taken back, um, and I tried to be passive aggressive in a sense, but I wanted him to understand that I meant business. And I really wanted this opportunity. And so he said, you know what? He said, I'll let my secretary know to schedule some time with you. I showed up in his fancy office, mahogany desk and all. It was him and the vice president of the bank. I brought in a blender, fruit in this office, and I started blending smoothies because I wanted to open smoothie bars and coffee bars and all of that, right? So I, I blend all the stuff in front of them, and he's looking at me, and I, he looks at the cup, and he's like, uh, I really don't kind of like smoothies, but I'm going to try this. And he said, you know what? He tasted it. He said, and I still don't like smoothies. He said, this is okay, but I still don't like smoothies. And he said, you know what? I'm going to give you the loan because the fact that you, that you um, were so, so strong, and regardless of the no, you didn't stop, and he said you persevered. And he said, that means to me that even if you've never worked in fast food and even if you you um, have never, you know, flipped a hamburger in your eye, because I was opening a quick service restaurant, he said, no matter what all of those things are, he says, the fact that you are willing to push so hard would indicate to me that in business you will do the same thing. And because of that, you will succeed. And he said, by the way, I saw your numbers, and you asked for 225000 You really need two seventy eight. So that's what we're going to give you. And he gave me my first $278,000, and I took off. Well, we want to thank you so much, Ms. Matthews. Um, you can, again, you can learn more about Terry Matthews on our website, justterry.com, T-E-R-R-I.com. Also, please check out James Voice to learn more about autism. I believe you can donate money there. You can read up on autism and learn more about it, especially if you know someone who's dealing with it. That's Jaden's Voice, J-A-D-E-N-S Voice dot org. And they're also on Twitter at Jaden's Voice. And uh, you can also follow Ms. Matthews on Instagram and keep up with some of the amazing things she's doing. Ms. Matthews, we want to thank you again for joining Politically Entertaining. Thank you for having me. Now, Frank, you could not be uh, present for the interview, but um, I just wanted to get your thoughts on how you think it went. How did I do, you know, solo without you? <laughs> well, first of all, you don't you don't need me to do anything. You like I said, you're doing a great job. Definitely want to again, you know, just congratulate you on conducting not just a, a very informative interview, but also allowing you know Terry to really express you know her heart, which uh, if you listen to the interview is. You know her her son. You know Jaden is at the center of you know his 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 autism, dealing with that and, and just everything she's overcome with that. It's almost as if that's driven her to to be even more successful. And and obviously, uh, the things she's done, the number of businesses she's had that are successful. That's just an inspiration to to all all people and you know not just African Americans, African American women, but just anybody who's had a dream to do something. I think that if you're listening, you can definitely get it done. She's doing all these things, and she has a son. Like I said, who who she said she he goes through some long days, some hard days, but she's she's there and and God has provided methods for her to to deal, do these do these things and I just think it's great, man. And and like I said, just I I encourage you to to listen to the interview and again listen to it again if you just listen to it because it was that good. I think it's that good and um again I mean just great job and and we look forward to you know Terry Matthews 
uh, coming back on the show. And, and again, much success in everything she's doing in the future. I appreciate that, man. I just, you know, just to, to add to that, she just really was very inspiring, man, not just to to women. I know she spoke a lot about, you know, by her being a woman, empowering women, but to anybody, you know, listening to that, I don't see how you can't be inspired and strive to to do um, maximize your potential and stuff. So we we were very appreciative of having her on, and if, if you're listening, Miss Matthews, me and Frank, we really thank you. That was a great, great interview. We enjoyed having you. Um, I had a, I don't, I hate to call it a rant, Frank, but let's just say, I don't know if you want to call it like a monologue that I was going to do on Donald Trump, because I would say for the most part, we've kind of ignored him. We've certainly mentioned him. You can't do a political show without mentioning him, but we certainly have not devoted the time that you see on CNN and MSNBC News, News to him. Like, if you watch Hannity, he's on Hannity nearly every every day. But, you know, I wanted to go ahead and finally give my, my true thoughts. But the, the interview with Miss Matthews was so good. It was lengthy, but it was good. And so we really, at Politically Entertaining, we're really trying to keep the show under an hour. If you listen last show, it went like an hour and five minutes. So me and Frank, we are aware of it. But just keep in mind, folks, we're covering like a week's worth of news in one hour, and we're, we're really trying not to cheat you on the details as best we can while being mindful of the the time. So just tune in next week, and I promise I'll give you my thoughts on Trump, and I believe Frank will too. If not, I'm going to try to talk him into doing it, even if he doesn't plan on it. But uh, So <laughs> tune in next week on that. Um, did you, you probably didn't, I know you, you tell me all the time you're, you're a new dad and stuff. Did you get a chance to watch the Oscars? I didn't. You know, you know, here's, here's where I'll, here's where I'll sum up about the Oscars. I, there's so much going around the Oscars. I think the most interesting thing to me was the, the feud between the first Aunt, Aunt Vivian, I think her name is Janet Huber, is that, did I say that correctly? That sounds um, right. Yes. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, the first Aunt Viv is, is the way to do it. So you go to IMDb and you look at Aunt Viv, this Aunt Viv that's been there for a couple seasons, and there's a light-skinned one. She's the dark-skinned one. She's the first one. Uh, so that her initial rant against uh, Will and Jada for wanting to boycott the Oscars was, to me, that was crazy. That was a crazy backdrop that set up, you know, anything, all these Saturday Night Live skits, uh, you know, Oscars being whitewashed, so to speak, people saying those things. You know, it was just an interesting time. I didn't plan to watch because I just, like like you mentioned, I didn't have time. I knew Chris Rock was a host. He generally goes in for the kill in his monologue. I heard that it was yes. a little bit over the top. I'm not surprised. Uh, that's what Chris Rock generally uh, does. That's why you have him hosting the show. I mean, I don't really have any thoughts on it. To me, it's the first, you know, thing, movies, especially with everything going on that we talk about. It's entertaining. Entertaining and and like I said, I'd like to get your opinion on what you thought maybe of Chris Rock, his performance, what he said, and, what, and if you watched the Oscars, did any of the movies that you thought should win, did they win? Well, I, I got to be honest, man. I I never really watched the Oscars because always always full of movies that not only have I not seen, but I've never even heard of. Like it was funny because one of the skits that Chris Rock did, where he just interviewed people outside. And he was naming some of the movies that were nominated, and these people legitimately thought he was like joking with them. Like, are you serious? That's really a movie? So no, but I am a huge Chris Rock fan, so I did tune in for that, and I recorded it, so I was able to like every, like everything and just really just watch his jokes. His open monologue was good. It, a couple of his jokes rubbed people the wrong way. Understandable. Uh, I think he mentioned something about. Um, we had more important things to deal with, like people getting hung. It was the way he phrased the ver- uh, the joke, I mean, that kind of made people a little uneasy. But he had his daughters come out there selling Girl Scout cookies at one point. Um, so he, he, did a, he did a fairly good job. I tried to find some type of outrage about no black people being uh, nominated. And, Frank, I don't want to be the whole... You know, well, it's more important things to boycott than the Oscars. 
Yeah, but you can make that argument about almost anything. People say that about Rosa Parks when she wouldn't get up from the bus. Man, we we got more important things to worry about than where we sit at on the bus. So I don't want to be that guy because, you know, in my opinion, movies and entertainment, they are important. And, you know, seeing, you know, people that look like you with your same skin color, you know, playing these different roles on movies and on television, it's very impactful, especially to kids. You know, it just really goes to how some people, like, view themselves, and it feeds into stereotypes in a negative or positive way. So I do think it's important. I'm not going to diminish how important entertainment was, but I just couldn't quite find the outrage that Aunt Viv had and uh, Jada Pinkett had or whatever. And, by the way, in my opinion, that movie by Will Smith did not deserve to be nominated. I mean, he had a terrible accent in it. It flopped at the box office. I'm sorry. That's just how I feel. But I just I couldn't get upset about the Oscars, man. So if you – I don't know what side some of the listeners are on on that, but if you're looking for outrage on this show, we apologize. It's, it's just not here. So that's that's all I got on that one, man. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not going to add anything to it. The only thing I will say about the whole the whole Aunt, Aunt Viv thing versus Will was actually interesting because Aunt Viv actually challenged Will and Jada, saying that yes, you're complaining about the Oscars being whitewashed, but uh, but you're no better than them because your production company hasn't hasn't exactly been a, been a beacon of light to to black artists and black actors. And it was interesting. I mean, I feel like those are the kind of things that 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 you know. You know, it didn't really get traction or anything like that, but that was an interesting thing that, that I thought was 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 a. It's just one of those Twitter beasts that actually may have had some substance, but it kind of just died down. And you know, we'll never know what the truth is. People throw around accusations, and like you mentioned, it's entertainment, and I think it's something that you when we when you, when you put things in perspective about Flint, Michigan, and you think about some of the other things that have happened to some 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 people, you know, with the police brutality and police violence, there are more important things than whether or not Will Smith gets nominated for an Oscar. That's in a very subjective thing versus somebody who's losing their life or somebody who's drinking tainted water. We need to keep those things yeah. uh, in, in, in perspective as well. Yeah, uh, and, and you know, Unveils, her little her beef goes way back, as you mentioned, to those Fresh Prince days <laughs> when they uh, – <laughs> Uh, something about they, she wanted their contract renegotiated, and, and Will Smith pretty much told her, I, I got my money. And, you know, her thing was, you're the star of the show. If you go in and back us up, we can all get a better contract. And in her words, I don't know if this is true or not, but in her words, you know, Will did not step up for her. So that's that. Definitely. So I think that's all we got for this week. Again, we want to thank you for, thank you for listening, and uh, you can check us out. This podcast, the podcast on iTunes, just go to iTunes, type in Politically Entertaining. We're also on Stitcher, uh, which is an app that's cross-platform. So if you have a Windows phone, and an iPhone, or a Droid, you can da- see us on Stitcher and uh, download us there as well. Uh, visit us on Facebook, facebook.com, slash Politically Entertaining. We're also on Twitter at Devocal Minority, that's D-A, V-O-C-L, Minority. I'm not going to spell it because I don't want to mess up. And uh, that's all I have, uh, Byron, so go ahead and take us out. Yes, uh, we're also on Instagram under Politically Entertaining. And we do want to encourage the listeners, please, especially if you're on iTunes. I'm, I've never seen Stitcher, but I assume they have a similar section. You know, on iTunes, when you subscribe and it asks you to write a review, if you, if you guys could just go there and write us a, 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 a great review, well, an honest review. We prefer it be great, but, you know, you can be honest. You know, rate me and Frank, rate the show. It really helps us get um, more notoriety and, and get a bigger platform to spread to more people. Uh, so please do that. You can also go to the website, politicallyentertaining.com. And not only can you leave feedback, but we want to be more interactive. So, you know, go there, you know, Give us suggestions on questions you would like answered, topics you would like discussed, and we will do that. We're going to try our best to have guests as much as we can. We have some great some great guests coming up. If you're on our Facebook page, then you know some of the ones that I've mentioned. We hope you enjoyed the Terry Matthews 
interview. And, again, check her out, JeffTerry.com, T-E-R-R-I, and Jadensvoice.org. That's J-A-D-E-N-S, Voice.org. Frank, I thank you for everything that you do on this show. I thank the listeners for everything that you do as far as supporting us, giving us good feedback. Like I said at the beginning of the show, we had our best week ever, and a lot of that was due to, you know, the Erica Perkins interview, and we just hope we continue to grow. We can't tell you enough how thankful we are. So just continue to support us, and we'll continue doing what we're doing. Tune in to us next week. Thank you for listening to Politically Entertaining. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes and visit politicallyentertaining.com for the latest in political news and updates.